We are reading the book of Leviticus, which is, I grant you, an odd thing to do. Um, but we are. This is actually week 10 in Leviticus. Anybody just like can't get enough of Leviticus? Let's keep going. Good, because we have several more weeks to go. Um, but today we're jumping into chapter 11 and these famous dietary and hygiene laws. And if you remember last week, we talked about the, the four category, categories they're supposed to try and keep separate in their mind. There's holy and unholy, clean and unclean. And, and the main category we really focus on um, involves this word, this Hebrew word, tameh. Remember this? Tame things, it's often um, translated as clean or, or unclean, I mean, or impure. I think blemished. Is, is a better translation, because Tame doesn't really mean sinful or, or evil or even wrong. It's just this recognition that one has come into contact with some aspect of the world that has brought them very near to the boundary between life and death. And death is a, a serious threat. And, and there's always this temptation with all this kind of our human faculties to try to misuse our abilities to control or avoid death. And so the whole reason for these laws about, you know, food and childbirth and skin diseases and bodily discharges is that those things symbolically in the Hebrew mind were associated with the powers of, of death. And so when you come up to the boundary of those things, you, you're asked to stop and sort of take a beat. Think carefully about where you are, what you're doing, what forces are coming to bear on your situation, and just be intentional about how they would proceed, to move with reverence for life and the powers involved, and ponder their steps and their, their trajectory, making sure that whatever they do next will lead them back toward life. So the, these laws, in, in a general sense, are meant to shape their imagination in very practical ways, but also symbolic ways that will help them draw near to God and the power of Life And so, so as we dig into the laws, my caution up front is we need to try to listen to the spirit of them, not the form of them, if you know what I mean. Because the form is from a very different time and place. And if we get too caught up on form, we'll sort of miss the whole point of them. Honestly, I've been chastened this summer in our reading of Leviticus, just about the whole way I've approached the book of Leviticus my entire life. I've been paying too much attention to form. And so I've made it kind of a, a caricature. You know, the caricature is like if you're in a touristy place and they draw people, they exaggerate form, right? That's the whole point of the art form. I think we're, we're tempted to, to do this. And so we need to not exaggerate form today and try to, try to look for the spirit, the symbolism, and the role that these laws played in, in what is a very early stage in the development of the people of God and their understanding of God. And this is kind of difficult because on the surface, this reads like a very typical purity code. And in a sense, they're obviously kind of purity codes, but they were anything but typical. They were actually quite innovative and new. Like your, your typical ancient purity laws had really two main goals. One was they served as boundary markers for who's in and out of the group. And then they also served as like um, markers of social hierarchy or class within their own group. So things like who were the real citizens who had privilege, things like aristocracy, they were conveyed by purity codes. We have this in our world right now, there's a bunch of people who love to talk about real Americans, right? That's a purity code. That's what that is. It's a boundary marker used to manipulate people. And, and those 
cultures, ancient cultures, had these purity codes, and very often what they did was they used this idea of tame to um, exert social pressure on people and force them to conform to boundary markers and hierarchies. That's your typical purity code. Hebrew law does not do that. And here I'm, I'm leaning on a lot of scholars. The main one, though, I, I have to say is Mary Douglas, who has, we've talked about quite a bit this summer, but I'm leaning on her. She says Hebrew laws are absolutely, absolutely unique in the ancient world in, in that they view tame, this idea of blemish or impurity, not as a weapon for conformity, but rather as just a basic fact of life that is, is an unavoidable part of reality. It's just part of the human condition. Tame happens. That's just how it goes. I'm, I'm gonna sell bumper stickers of this. Tame happens, right? And the question is, what do you do at the Tame point, right? And we, this is what we talked about last week. If you missed last week, I highly recommend um, going back and listening to that because I think Tame is a really helpful concept. So the Hebrew law is really meant to establish an order to their society that will enable them to kind of steward life at these boundary markers when they bump up against the, the powers of life and death in the midst of very ordinary things like food and shelter and clothing and blood and sex and childbirth, disease, discharges, contagious diseases or contagions, and, the, and to hold that somehow in balance with the common good of the community, and especially with regard to the vulnerable and the poor which if you're just kind of glossing over the law or making a character, you completely miss this aspect. So, so the Hebrew laws are purity codes, but they're not just your typical ancient purity codes. That's a caricature. They are actually Torah. They're teaching. They're teaching us, instructing us on God and our own life, on, on um, how to steward the fundamental forces of life and death in a particular way. In fact, these, these laws aren't ultimately about food and sex and disease and all those things. They're theological. They're symbolic teachings that are kind of embedded in ordinary things like food and sex and disease and all that stuff. But they're designed to shape the imagination about God and their understanding of life and the world and what it means to be human. And it was, it was less like a, a bunch of laws um, or, or purity codes that reinforce a pyramid structure of empire and more a way of ordering the world so that everybody can get on, on the blessing. And that way, like the, thing, the best example I've ever heard of what they're actually like in, in the modern day world is they're a little bit like reality TV makeover shows. Anybody like these shows? Like Queer Eye for the Stray Guy or Extreme Makeover? Anybody, anybody watch these things? Yeah, it's more than raise their hand right there. <laughs> what, what they do in these shows, they just go find just like the saddest case, like somebody who's like sitting around all day in their recliner eating you know, like Oreos and watching TV. They've just kind of given up hope on any kind of a fulfilling life. And then this team of very energetic people come and they just descend upon this house, usually an expert who knows what they're doing, and they come into this person's world and they just start showering them with love and affection and attention. And they say, what are you doing? Like, why are you living this way? You're obviously unhappy. Like, don't you want more than this out of life? 
And usually the person will end up saying, look, uh, of course I do. Like, I know I'm a mess. I'm just really lost right now. I don't want to look like this. I don't want to feel like this. I want a fresh start. I've been trying, but I've lived this way so long, I kind of don't know how to change. I wouldn't know even where to begin. And this is kind of where the children of Israel were about a year into their wanderings. They were just longing for a better way of life. It's like they didn't really know how to change. And they knew there was a better way to live. They just didn't know how to get there. And in these makeover shows, what they do is, I mean, the very first thing they do is they start to get into the details of a person's life. And they essentially elevate the importance just like everyday things, how they spend their time, how they spend their money, what they eat, how they sleep, what they do with their body, their clothes, their, um, the decor of their house. They, they just come to their home and they start naming things that are disordered, right? It's like the equivalent of somebody going, yeah, you, you look kind of chubby in those pants. Like, I don't want to hear this. They do. They just, they just, they just come in and say, that's Tom A, that's Tom A, right? And they start naming these patterns of disorder in every aspect of this person's life. They just keep naming them and saying over and over, you're better than this. Like, there is a better life for you. And so, so it's naming Tom A, but at the same time, it's also this deep affirmation of life and that life is out there and this is what God wants. And they always zoom in on some like particular, but almost arbitrary detail like they'll they'll be they'll focus on like a chair and they'll say we're getting rid of this chair all right this chair is 40 years old it's ugly it's worn out i think it smells like there's there's holes in it and this chair is tame it's unclean and the person will always go like no <laughs> you can't take my chair like this is my chair i love this this chair and they kind of resist until they take him to a furniture store and sit him in a chair that's like made in this century and then all the person is like this is an amazing chair like this <laughs> this is the best chair i've ever sat in why was i i can't even remember what that old chair looks like right and and, and then then they're kind of off to the races because the next thing the host does is they say like it's not just the chair man like the chair is symbolic of your whole life. Your life is like this chair, right? You're very attached to it and it stinks, right? It's not working. Um, so you need to go through everything and make some serious changes. Again, it's this affirmation of life. There's more life out there. And, and this is where they begin always to kind of elevate the importance of the everyday by focusing on the little details of life. It's very much like the Hebrew law. Next thing they do is they start making um, distinctions and drawing boundaries. They usually do this one through diet and nutrition on these shows. Like they'll look in their refrigerator and they'll pull out food that like expired during the Reagan administration, you know? And they're like, why are you, why are you living like this? Like there's no food in your food, man. This is, this is gross. Like humans should not eat like this. Only people who hate themselves eat like this. And, and they say, this is Tom A, this fridge, the, what, what you're eating, it's, it's disordered. And if you're going to, you know, grow beyond where you are right now as a person, you got to value what you put in your body. And so they teach them to make distinctions between good food and bad food. And they draw boundaries for them. They say, you're going to have to say yes to, you know, fruits and veggies. And you're going to have to say no to whatever you're doing with the Oreos right there. It's unrecognizable to me, right? And we're, they, some of them seem a little 
a little odd. Like they'll, be, they'll say, you're going to have to say no to pasta for a while and lay off the white bread. It's not that they have something against pasta or that they hate white bread or that it's evil. It's just that right now for what you need to do to get moving back toward life, you're going to have to learn to say no to some things like that. And they take them shopping at like Whole Foods and pay the bill so that they don't know how expensive it is to eat well. <laughs> and, then, and then they take them home and show them how to cook a good meal and they sit down and eat it and the person's like, this is amazing. Like, I, I don't know, I can't believe I've been eating top ramen and Fritos. Like those two things don't even go together, do they? Like, what was I thinking? And, and they say, I, I never thought I could make a meal that, that tastes like this. And the host goes, it's not just the meal. Like, this is your whole life. You're selling yourself short. You can do much more than, than this. If you'll learn to make some distinctions and set some boundaries, what to say yes and no to, you'll come alive in a whole new way. And again, it's just kind of bathed in this affirmation about life moving forward, a path that leads to flourishing. And then they, they always go to work at some point on the aesthetics of their life. They usually start with like a massive purge, which is where they hook me in. Like I just, it's so cathartic to watch somebody purge their house because I refuse to do so. But they, they, they again, they zoom in on a detail. They elevate the everyday. They make these distinctions and boundaries and they, they say the hard thing. They're like, there's no reason to have 27 can openers. Like you need two tops, right? Or these, you have 14 alarm clocks and and 12 of them don't work. Like, throw this stuff out. This, this is outdated. This is ugly. That smells bad. This is moldy and gross. These things are actually dangerous. And, and, and they just throw all this stuff in the dumpster. And all of it is, becomes a symbol of a disordered life of Tame. And then they get them thinking creatively about beauty and design and function. They'll often change the whole decor of somebody's house. They'll like bring in a bunch of sunlight and color. They'll bring in organization and structure to their workplaces, usually some connection to, to nature with plants and stuff. And, and just through design and creativity, they improve both, both the beauty, the aesthetic, but also the like functionality of the place. Give them a whole, whole new design for their household or workspace. And then there's the like obligatory personal makeover where like a new haircut, if it's extreme, there's like hair plugs and veneers in, in there somewhere. There's new look clothes that fit and are in style, even new cleansing, grooming rituals, like you're gonna have to wash your hair, like with shampoo. That's how this goes, right? And then there's some big emotional reveal, right? Unveiling the new look and, and then again, attaching that symbolic meaning to this. Um, drawn from aesthetics and, and beauty. Actually, I think it kind of works, the reality TV makeover show. It's, it is, it's closer to the intention and, and the function of Jewish food laws and hygiene laws than typical purity code things. And the, the host, you can see, they're almost like the priests in Israel. Someone from the outside who comes in, they zero, on, zero in on what's Tame in your world, and they don't spare your feelings. They like say the quiet part out loud. They call everything out. And in so doing, they're just elevating the importance of the everyday and all these little details of life and, and how they are actually not small things. They're fundamental forces that are shaping your life, and they're in disorder here. 
And then the new rules that they establish for people are like the laws, like dietary and hygiene laws. They teach people to draw distinctions and boundaries to say yes to things that lead to life and no to things that lead to death and establish new rituals, new habits for whatever, how to clean things, for hygiene, diet, um, and just the navigation of their spaces and their relationships. And they teach them to find symbolic meaning in all of this. Do things like the aesthetics of it, the beauty of it, the, the function and design. And, and all of it, they're kind of down in the weeds, you know? And they're putting the details of people's life under a microscope and saying, do you see what this is doing to you? If you think it's a small thing, it's not. It's connected to the fundamental forces of life. And you were made for more than this. You were made for like wholeness and flourishing. And the, the person usually at some point um, says, you know, like, first time in a long time, I kind of, I can see it now. I can see myself living a little bit differently. I sense some value in myself that I, I had kind of lost touch with. And there might be a different future. Everybody has a good cry, and then it goes to commercial, right? It's fantastic. But it's decent. It's a decent analogy for these hygiene laws and how they're meant to function. They're much more like reality TV than the typical rituals that are um, purity codes that are just about who's in, who's out, what's the hierarchy, right? And they're always embedded in and conveying on every level this deep affirmation of life and a way to organize your world that continually, even when Tame happens, and Tame happens, you move back toward life. And, and, and this is what they are, an affirmation of life through kind of these three little levels, that heightened awareness of the everyday and the details, setting boundaries and distinctions, and finding symbolic meaning in the things that we do. And the goal of all of it is to, is to move somehow back toward life and flourishing. Each week, um, we've been kind of messing with one word that we, we sort of focus on. Today, um, our word actually doesn't come from the text. It's really more from just the Hebrew language in, in general. And modern-day Hebrew language, the word is um, kashrut. Say that with me. Say kashrut. So kashrut is like kosher. That's, it's the Hebrew version of that. It's, it means fitness, kosher. Kashrut refers to the Jewish dietary laws in particular. It's um, how to eat kosher, how to keep a kosher kitchen, what the Israelites are allowed to eat as food and cook. And the bulk of these laws are found either in this one chapter in Deuteronomy or here in chapter 11, the text that we read part of today. Um, And this is where the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, say to the Israelites of all the animals that live on the land, these are the ones that you may eat. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. There are some that only chew the cud or only have a divided hoof, but you must not eat them. The camel, for instance, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is ceremonially tame, unclean for you. The hyrax, no idea what that is, but it's a thing. Chew, though it chews the cud, it does not have a divided foot, so it is unclean for you. The rabbit, though it chews the cud, it does not have a divided hoof, it is tame for you. And the pig, though it has a divided hoof, does not chew the cud, it is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God, right? So, so it, be, it begins by saying, 
this is what you can eat. This type, this category you can eat. And, and the Lord draws the line at quadrupeds with cloven hoofs that chew the cud. Seems a little arbitrary. So why? Those animals are safe, safe to eat. Why? What the rabbis say, you know, there are a lot of Jewish people around the world who keep a kosher kitchen, still hold to this diet. So this is hotly contended. But kind of the general consensus is that if you stay in the family, the type of animals that have cloven hooves and eat and, and chew the cub, then you're on safe ground um, tied to the prohibition that we've already read about not eating animals with their blood still in them. So this is tied to, it's connected to the prohibition against eating blood. Blood is a symbol of life, right? So you have to think symbolically to get this. So in a sense, what this is saying is, I don't want you eating predators. Eat herbivores. Don't eat predators. Predators feed on death. And I don't want you to feed on things that feed on death, right? So in a sense, predators are, are kind of symbolically the antithesis of shalom. This is part of nature at war with another part of nature and taking advantage of them. So they're just like, don't, don't eat that. Don't feed on animals that feed on death. Or as Mary Douglas puts it, she says, holiness is incompatible with predatory behavior. So... Um, just don't take part in this. They're, they're at war with nature. Don't feed on, on that. Now, you might say, this kind of doesn't make sense. Like, if those are the good guy animals. Why are we killing the good guy animals? But sort of the logic of it is that those animals almost willingly lay down their life for you, right? And this is not just pres prescribing a diet for them or giving an arbitrary law. This is teaching them how to be human. Don't prey on other people. Don't mess with people who do. And your people are the ones that lay down their lives for one another. In this section on birds, I don't know if you notice, it says these, these birds um, you are to regard as unclean and not eat because they are unclean. The eagle, the vulture, the black vulture, the red kite, any kind of black kite, any kind of raven, the horned owl, the screech owl, the gull, any kind of hawk, the little owl, the cormorant, the great owl, the white owl, the desert owl, the osprey, the stork, any kind of heron, the hoopoe, and the bat. Um, so what do these all have in common? They're all predators or scavengers. They feed on death and accidents. And, and so this is it. This is the first cash root. Don't eat predators out of honor for blood that symbolizes life, right? The life that is in the blood. Avoid animals that feed on animals' blood. By the way, we mostly still do this. We, for the most part, our, our diet, if we're eating meat, is herbivores. The next category has to do with eating animals that have a variation from their type, which makes them more vulnerable in some way. It's almost like, look, these guys already have to struggle just because of how they look. Don't make it worse by preying on them. Like the camel with that giant hump on their back. The dude already has a really heavy load, and they just look sad. So don't, 
don't eat them, right? And this had symbolic meaning for them because there's an aesthetic thing. They're attaching meaning to this. And and they're saying, it's not just camels. Like, in your life, the people who carry a heavy load, don't prey on them. Victims of injustice or, or, or poverty or sickness or struggle or theft or fraud or any kind of systemic problem. Don't, don't prey on them. Or like rabbits with those abnormally giant hind legs or really short front legs, depending on which way you fall. How do they manage, right, to run around and avoid the foxes? Obviously, you know, not very well. So this is, this is symbolic. They don't, don't touch them, and, and it's connected to people in their life, symbolically, those who suffer from an abnormality, an ailment of some kind, a shortcoming, a deformity, some kind of physical challenge. Their life is hard enough. Don't prey on them in your life. Or those poor um, bats. We didn't, I don't know if we hit the bat part this morning. The blind bats or the worms. Later on, there's worms. Can't, can't eat worms. Um, which is really too bad for the Survivor Man guy. What's the Bear grills? The guy who always takes his shirt off. No worms, right? Can't eat worms or bats. They're, they're both blind. Of course, this is symbolic of the people in their community are blind, which is a lot of people. A lot of the elderly. This before cataract surgery and stuff. A lot, blindness was everywhere in their world. So it's not just prescribing a diet to them. It's teaching them how to be human. Don't prey on the weak and the vulnerable and the sufferers of injustice. Mary Douglas again, she says, animal species that resemble and shape the sufferers from physical injury must not be eaten. That is, an equivalence is drawn between species of animals and individuals, persons who are lamed or maimed or otherwise disfigured and connects, and this connects with the rule against offering blemished animals that we read clear back in the offering section. So that's kind of the second category of these kashrut. Don't prey on, don't eat the sufferers of injustice. The third category is this, um, somewhat similar. It says, of all the creatures living in the water of the seas and the streams you may eat, any that have fins and scales, but all the creatures in the seas or streams that do not have fins or scales, whether among all the swarming things or all the other living creatures in the water, you are to regard as tame, unclean. And since you are to regard them as unclean, you must not eat their meat. So they can eat fit, all kinds of fish with fins and scales, um, which are their protection. It's like scales or armor, fins or escape. But you can't eat fish without fins or scales. So what's this about? If you're not a, you know, fisheries biology guy, I'd take organismic biology, K-State, anybody else have to take this? Confession, I was a biology major, had to take this one twice. Um, (laughs) Don't know what I was doing in biology, but. um, So fins and scales, um, so baby fishes are hatched out in a sense, naked. Their, their fins and scales, which are their protection, grow in much later. So this is sim- symbolic of the young in their world who are vulnerable. Baby fish, minnows, the larvae of insects, they're all born without any protection in the world. Even like it, it goes to like um, in- insects in their shells. Like they need that protection, but that grows in later. So young animals, juveniles, babies were off limits at food this, as food. This obviously connects to people in their world who are vulnerable, the orphans, or just children in general. 
Again, it's not just a dietary law. This is teaching them what it means to be human, what the people of God are supposed to be like. Don't prey on kids, man. And, and so these, these are really, in a, in a general sense, these are the, the kashrut, the basic laws regarding food and what they can eat and what they cannot eat. And in a sense, if you go, I think the next slide has it. They, in a sense, they're, they're operating on two levels. There's the pragmatic level, and we could get into a lot of this as just pragmatic, how to, how to live and not get sick or make others sick. But in a symbolic sense, it's saying don't eat predators who prey on the lives of others because we're not like that. Peaceful people eat peaceful animals. Don't eat sufferers of injustice who give, have a tough life already. Don't eat juvenile or baby animals who have no protection. Like, this is not who you are. Their diet was symbolic and teaching them how to live. Don't prey on the weak in your life. Don't take advantage of those who suffer from injustice. Don't exploit the young. You're better than that. There's a better life for you than that. And they do this by going down into the details of food. This is Torah. This is teaching. I mean, in the ancient world, there are no textbooks. There's no public school. You want to teach, this is how you do it. You organize their diet and give it symbolic meaning. And so um, a lot of the animals that are listed are explicitly, um, if they're explicitly listed, they're borderline cases. These are, don't totally fit with the type. They have maybe one thing, but not the other. And so they, they kind of zoom in on those special occasions. And what they're doing is kind of what the reality TV shows you. They're, they're elevating the, the everyday, making distinctions and boundaries, finding symbolic meaning in all of it. And all of it is embedded in this affirmation of life and wholeness and flourishing that's not just for some people. It's for everyone. And so these patterns take special care to talk about those who, are, who have it rough. And so you can kind of see how, I mean, we're not following dietary laws, but this stuff still applies, right, to folks like us. Because, of course, what we eat always is of spiritual significance. I mean, food is a, like a direct way that we receive the gift of life from God, from God's world. Your body, your health, your future, your family, everybody you love depends upon this ability to find food, which was far from given in, in the ancient world. Curing food was like their major preoccupation. There's a ton of food insecurity and scarcity, and, and wars were fought over food. And famine was common, and it is horrific. Like massive death by starvation is a miserable existence. And so in, in these times of scarcity and insecurity, that's when virtue goes out the window, right? When you're hungry, principle is gone. So part of what these laws are saying is, like, how you eat is always of spiritual significance. How you get your food, what you eat and don't eat, will shape your imagination. It will teach you. It's Torah. It'll teach you something about God and life and the world and what it means to be human. So we don't follow kashrut, like, thank heavens, because bacon, right? But there's, a, <laughs> I'm just saying, bacon. There's, you know you can bit bacon as a side order at Dunkin' Donuts? It's pretty great. But I, I think there's a deeper, sorry, I lost a bunch of you because you're just like, bacon. <laughs> you're my people. 
But I, there's, I think there's a deeper wisdom here that still applies, kind of a lesson for all of us when, um, when, as we're struggling to navigate the world, right? And the lesson is, is really something like everything um, on earth has not just been put here for us to consume and exploit however we want. Everything we do shapes us. It matters what you eat and how you get your food. And humans are part of nature, right? What we eat, how we get food, it's, it's all part of this delicate dance of nature, of life and death, and everything has to fit together in shalom, right? And things have to feed off of each other, and there has to be some kind of boundary and distinction. We can't just consume and exploit without impacting that delicate dance, and we're the creatures responsible to make sure it works and doesn't run off the rails. That's what it means to have dominion, to be created in the image of God. So, so we don't have to follow the, the rules of kashrut, but, or kashrut, or keep a kosher kitchen, but they're Torah still for us, teaching, and they're teaching us about reverence for life and about reverence for the vulnerable and the heavy laden, victims of injustice in the young. And they're teaching us, stay away from the predators who prey on the lives of the weak. So the kashrut are kind of modeling for us a way to just consider how it all fits together, how when you do this, it impacts that, and when these animals do this to the others, it's savage, and how these guys are vulnerable and need protection, and those almost willingly lay down their lives. Look at this. Draw the symbolic meaning from it. Let it teach you. Don't make it harder by exploiting the little ones, or you'll do that. That will leak out into other parts of your life. Organize it. Your job is organize it so it flourishes all of it and can find peace. And this isn't just animals. It's symbolic of all our relationships. And so it's just, I mean, something as basic as what we eat or don't eat, it says something about who we are, who we are becoming. There's a deeper teaching about the importance of, like, just the little details of living. And what happens when we cut corners and exploit and consume without limits. Those kind of habits will bring us to the boundary, to the Tame place. Only what happens is usually they release the boundary of Tame without this tight connection to God. And then it's easy for life to be overcome by death. So we don't observe the, these laws, but there's a deeper teaching that's meant to kind of shape our, the details, our habits and practices, and the boundaries between life and death to keep us from falling into trouble, right? Consumption, exploitation, becoming predators, violence. And there's just kind of three steps in, in embedded in this, kind of a way to approach it, elevate the everyday, the details. Make distinctions and boundaries. Say yes to some things. No. Find symbolic meaning in the things that you do, in aesthetic conditions and function. 
and let these patterns kind of impact your view of the world. That's, that's what they were doing. So in, in Leviticus, in this, um, in this series, we've been trying to do a practice, some kind of spiritual practice each time. So we're going to do another contemplative practice. I invite you just to sit comfortably where you are and bow your heads. I'm just going to lead you in a couple minutes here of con- contemplation. Our exercise is just going to walk through these three steps. Like, if you were going to elevate your every day, and maybe especially in light of this chapter, in, you might think about food. Elevate your every, some everyday practice. If something comes to mind, stick with that. If not, grab onto food. What does our relationship to food say about who we think we are? What are our little habits with regard to food? What are they doing to us? Or to the world? Then maybe think for a minute about distinctions and boundaries. You know, are some lines being drawn somewhere, blurred somewhere between what's good, what's not good for us? for the world. You can stick with food or hop to some completely other thing that you think of where we're blurring some lines and it doesn't seem right and maybe there's a distinction that should be made so that we can say yes to life and no to things that lead to death and violence and injustice. Is there some place in your world, in your life that comes to your mind? And then lastly, is there some like symbolic meaning that just comes to mind as you think about this? Something that sticks out to you? Seems like maybe it could be a word from God. Oh God, help us to think about the details of our life and distinctions and boundaries, what to say yes and no to, and lead our imaginations um, closer to you and closer to your vision for what it means to be human and for how this world should be, how it should exist. And I pray that we would see in you and in this Torah, this teaching, your deep affirmation of life. We're so grateful that you are everywhere and always and always the same. Live, be, I want you to be in the world. And we want this too. We're grateful to be part of a people who still turns to you for guidance. Amen. Will you stand, please? We're going to receive communion now. The way we do communion is we just are released row by row and come forward and we offered a, a plate of bread and a cup. And you can just take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup and then receive it. And they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can 
respond, you can say amen or I will remember or however you feel comfortable responding. The reason we do this is that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it and blessed it and, and handed it out to his followers and they each um, shared in it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, um, after supper, he took a cup, a common cup, and they all drank from it. He said, this cup is the new covenant, a new relational arrangement between you and God in my blood. My blood means life, right? And then he said, just whenever you get together, take my body, my blood, my life into your life. It's, it's a food thing, right? Symbolic, just like this chapter. Take, it, take my life into your life feed on me, be made out of the stuff I'm made out of, and then go out in the world and be salt and light and see what happens. And so this is why we, we do this. We just kind of symbolically take part in this common meal to embody what Jesus was talking about that has its root way back there in this kashri. And so we invite anybody who calls on the name of Christ to join us at the table. If you would join me and let's pray a blessing. Lord, we do ask your blessing on this bread and this cup. May it be to us a spiritual food and drink, a means of your grace. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out to the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?